So you've got this perception gap. It's always there, always there. Once you, that arises, then there's the uh, people realise you're good, and then sort of after that, you may get some promotions. You get the recognition for it. So it's a gap between the perception of recognising it and the wrecking perception of seeing it and the recognition then there's another gap to when you actually get the money so the process of self-fulfillment is you do something you do it really well you realize you do it well now you start welcome to the just larson show where i interview innovators leaders and uncommonly high achievers today on the show we're lucky to have steve killalay steve thanks for doing this my pleasure to be here. So, Steve, can you give people a little bit of an overview on your success in business and now the incredible success that you're having in philanthropy? And then I've got a lot of questions for you. Okay, thanks. Look, just a quick thumbnail sketch of my life. I started off as a computer programmer at the age of 27, actually. I was a trainee computer programmer. Something I really liked from there, I developed the two computer programs. Uh, the first one ended up launching a company, which eventually ended up listed on NASDAQ. And the second, uh, EO, launched another company, a global IT company, which eventually ended up publicly listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So they were great experiences. I loved them. And from that, I made quite a bit of money. After doing that, I then decided to establish a family foundation to work with the poorest of the poor. And so that then took me into a lot of war zones, near post war zones and such, because a lot of the time, the most poverty was related to conflict, although I didn't realize it at the time. And then at one point there, I was walking through Northeast Kabul in the Congo, and it's one of the more violent places in the world, and started to think, well, what are the most peaceful countries in the world? Is there anything I could learn from them to bring into the projects I was doing? And like a lot of entrepreneurial experiences, pretty much like my companies, it was just sort of a fantasy question I was asking and asking. And then when I got back to Sydney, searched the internet, and there was no listing which ranked the countries of the world by their peacefulness. And so from that, I got the concept of creating the Global Peace Index. And that just took me down a whole new journey for the last uh, uh, 17, 18 years, which is when I'm putting most of my time now, just working on global peace. So, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. Can you give us a couple of stats of, of what's the result of all this, the charitable work and the peace work? Yeah, sure. Like, like I love stats, like obviously being an ex-programmer, I just have numbers running through my mind all the time. Sort of when I look at things, I think in terms of numbers. So I guess the first one, if we looked at the, the Charitable Foundation, that's the name of the Family Foundation, or TCF for short, direct beneficiaries now be about 3.6 million people. And that's, but we've done over 220 projects, probably 230 projects now. Average project runs for three years. Average expenditure is about 100,000 US per annum per project, just to give you an idea, an idea of the scale. Working with the poorest of the poor is a certain, and certain types of interventions we do. And I guess a lot of people will say they want to have impact investing with their philanthropy and stuff like that, but I don't take that tact at all. I just look at what I'm really about as alleviating human suffering, and there's an awful lot of human suffering in the world. So we'll do all sorts of uh, things like it can be setting up revolving loans for uh, tractors in India, for example. So it's sort of people 
we give them a tractor, they then pay us back over the next five years for the tractor that goes into a revolving fund and they buy another one. We've done things like that on the establishment of ponds, and I mean really deep ponds, they're more like a lake, uh, in places uh, such as uh, Nepal, that would be another example. Do a lot of famine famine relief. Uh, so in Zimbabwe, we're currently feeding about 20,000 uh, people because of major famines down there. Done Worked on the rehabilitation of child soldiers. Uh, might come back to that later. That's really, really something uh, which is out there in another world. So a lot of the food and the crop improvement projects, a lot of clean water projects as well. Uh, so that, there's some of the stuff there. Now, if we come over to the Institute, for economics and peace. So if we look at that, we'll start off with a few stats on that. Eh? So if we look at that, so we've put a lot of money into the marketing of it, for example. So marketing for us is exceptionally important. This is for most entrepreneurs. And I guess the background in business brought me to that. So last year we had 28 billion media impressions from about 14,000 different articles globally. And a lot of them were on the back of the Global Peace Index and the Global Terrorism Index, for example. We train ambassadors. We've got over 4,000 Institute for Economics and Peace, or what we call IEP ambassadors now around the globe. What's interesting, the two areas where we've probably had the most people we've trained in the last two years have been in Ethiopia, the height of the war and that war's still going on. And also in Nigeria, uh, and that's a, a backdrop to just the dynamic changes which are happening in Nigeria, because it's, it's racked by conflict as well, but you've got an incredibly entrepreneurial, a uh, pop, young population there who are looking for change. So there'll be a couple, 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 couple of stats, I suppose. Uh, last year, I think we spoke on 300, uh, a bit more, 350 different events globally and probably had about 1.3 billion social media impressions so there's a couple of simple stats anyway well i'm i'm happy you have the little tip of your tongue because one of the things that i liked as i was looking at some other interviews you've done is this idea of that you can't really manage what you're not measuring i think you were talking about the global peace index and the terrorism index and, you know, we've run a nonprofit for 13 years, and it is one of the things that I see shied away from is there's a lot of people that want to participate, but there sometimes isn't the, the reach that could be had because they're not willing to track. And then when you go to donors who are business people who want to see things that are tracked, they're a little less, they're a little less swayed when it just feels like squishy stories, but there's no numbers. Yes, yes. So I think there's one of the one of the interesting things. There's a difference in the mindset and the way people working in NGOs approach things and business people. That's one of the things I sort of dealt with all my life. And so a lot of the people in NGOs are there. They're primarily there because they're working from their heart. They're there to try and make a difference, try to create change. And so a lot of them aren't, aren't particularly around numbers. They're more about the qualitative outputs of projects rather than quantitative. And so there's a difference. So I, mean, I don't want to make it too big a difference, but there is a difference in mindset with that. And I've seen that again and again. So people get emotionally upset because they've screwed up in business, we'd hold them accountable, okay, but with a bit of compassion, whereas the first thing in an NGO is to try and rescue the person rather than to hold them to account. 
that's one one of the slight differences which I've which I've seen there between in, in, in NGOs, I guess, and business. I think one of the other things too is sort of people coming in. There's lots of ways of looking at this. This concept of inputs, outputs, outcomes. And so quite often the input, let's say, if we'll make something up something simple, is like you put the money in. The outcome is, of, well, I've trained a, 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 a 10,000 kids in school. The outcome is how much more they improved in their education attainment. Now, the outcomes can get very, very hard to measure. But in business, we're very, very much focused on outcomes, and particularly when you get into complicated ones. So let's say we want to improve, improve the living conditions in a village. So we come in and we do a food improvement program. So the output you can see, but the outcome is a lot more difficult because you've got a lot of other things coming in. It may be that they put a highway through the town. Now they've got more business, so people's livelihoods have improved that way, and therefore they can sell more produce and get better food get better prices for the food. It could be that someone else put in a clean water project and a bit more water in the project where you're trying to improve the outcome. And therefore, now you've got this cross intersections. But numbers for me are very, very important. And I just might hit on a short little story. And I guess sort of the, when I went back and the, with the concept of the Global Peace Index in Northeast Kivu, which I mentioned in the Congo, which I mentioned earlier on, what really struck me when I realised there wasn't any measure of the peacefulness of the world, uh, what I realised is if you can't really measure something, can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your, 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 your actions are helping you or hindering in achieving your goals? You simply don't. And so that was how the Global Peace Index was born. But as I moved on, what I realised, most of this study of peace was qualitative. There was little quantitative work. And so the whole concept of the Institute for Economics and Peace was founded around how do we actually quantitate peace. And what happened with doing that, it's moved it more to the centre ground because it was considered quite ethereal, if you like. It was something which was, was really nice, but something which was impractical. And I think what we did is we wrap the economics around it and the quantitative analysis now sort of the it's, it's right in the centigram. Well, I'm, I'm super interested out of all these, you know, over 3 million people that you guys, have, I'm sure you've got a, a bunch of your favorite success stories. Can you tell us one of your favorite success stories of someone you're able to be involved with? Sure. Yeah. Now, look, I can give you, give you two if you like. So uh, yeah, one was in a place called Kusula in Tanzania, right on the border of Burundi and the Congo. So it's probably the poorest place in the world I went to. We had a program out there where we were trying to get kids drugs for malaria because you have one of the highest rates of malaria in Africa there. And all these the kids under five were dying all the time. But there's no adequate, uh, uh, sorry, no adequate uh, medical facilities out there. So they all used to go and see uh, traditional healers or witch doctors, really. So a lot of the time they'd use spells and potions and stuff like that to try and cure disease because they'd see it as being something brought by bad spirits. So anyway, I had a meeting one day with the, my, this place that's so incredibly poor, with 20 or 30 of the, uh, these traditional healers to uh, look at uh, uh, trying to talk them into 
using uh, Western drugs from the, uh, this organisation we're working with. As I walked out of the meeting afterwards, it was like everyone was just a, a, just a desperately poor. It's, everything's dirty and grey. I saw this one woman just stood out, stood out. And so I said to the person I'm working with, hey, who's that? They go, oh, that's Utopia. And I thought, wow, what a name. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> you want, want to hear a story? And I've gone, yeah, sure. And so what they said is said, well, she's HIV positive and she's one of the early people to turn up HIV positive. And at that stage, everyone thought you could contact it through touch and things like that. So she was exiled from the village and she used to live about a half a kilometre out of the village. And then as HIV AIDS took off, people would come and talk to her. Okay, they'd crawl into a hut at night and talk to her because she's really very bright woman and she ended up as a sort of counselling so the local or the charity I was working with they picked up on this and then made her an informal counsellor as the people started to become more aware and she was then incorporated back into the village but she was unpaid for doing it so anyway sort of I had a chat with her and she was really quite something so I said what do you want and she said I want to create a shop I said, okay, all right, I'll give you $300 to create a shop. So created a shop. I came back 18 months later. And sure enough, there's this shop stacked with food. But more than that, she'd actually built herself a small house. And like these houses are pretty small, okay? Small, two-room, a, 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 a cheap brick hut, I think of. Uh, uh, she built herself a house. Had uh, got a sister into boarding school and was in the process of building a house for a dad and like that was just a little one a really little one another one's an example of a uh, of a uh, school we support in Myanmar or Burma and it provides free education for 10,000 kids in Mandalay so it's run by a monk and his brother and they're just some of the better entrepreneurs I've seen so anyway one story at once. We, so we we fund part of the operation of the school and built a built built a, 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 a one of the school blocks there for a, a, for the classes. And so one stage there, a friend of his from Corinne State came down and said, "Well, look, we've got a civil war running up up there. All the kids are get, have got no school. They're either getting picked up and pressed into the uh, into the militias or pressed into the army, and it's just a hopeless place." So he said, okay, all right, I've got accommodation, so I can, uh, I've got a school, I can educate them, I've got accommodation. This is 20 people type accommodation, so it's, it's really, really basic. But he didn't have enough money to feed them, so he took 400 of them, brought them down, and then what he did is took them in as novice monks so they could go out with their begging bowls in the morning to be able to get, which is the custom in the, uh, Myanmar, the monks, each day, see a whole processions of them going through the villages with their bowls to get food to eat. And I thought that was just a great entrepreneurial story. <laughs> no kidding. Slight, slight tangent, just because I like numbers. On the, on the businesses you took public, what kind of market capitalizations did those get to, kind of at their peaks? Yes, yeah, so at the peak, if you look at the integrated research, uh, it got up to about half billion peak. I, uh, when I floated it, it held the, didn't, 
Uh, yeah, when I floated it, I held, uh, I think it was about 92% of it, the other 8% was staff. So it, it established that I need no, needed no outside capital. And then over the years, I sort of eventually uh, you know, sold, down in, sold down into it. And I've still got a small percentage, but not a lot. Okay. Well, I, I'm interested, what principles from grow, you know, growing a half billion dollar company, what are the principles that have translated the best into nonprofit that maybe you weren't seeing as much in other nonprofit entities? I think to, the first thing I think is bang for the buck. Okay, and the sec the second thing, and I, I didn't realise this till I was so far into it with the IEP, but I'd just basically taken the skills I'd done out of uh, developing computer products and in software companies and applied it to IEP. So I think one is a, a, a concept on of marketing. I think there's uh, concepts of quality. I think so in coming out of computing program background, you really had to be a, almost anal on the quality of the uh, your software you produced. And so I think that was another quality which I brought into it because in terms of the products we produce, like the production of the reports, a lot of energy into getting stuff and making it really, really clear and concise. So we hire a lot of PhDs and, uh, and such. So what happens is that when they come in and they start writing as if they're sort of writing a doctrine, no one can understand it. And you start off with the, what your problem is, then you start writing around why it's so difficult to solve the problem, and then the intricate details of doing it, and then at the very bottom you say, this is the solution. Whereas sort of when you're communicating with the public, the first thing you want to do is give them a very simple explanation of the solution then a very dumbed down version of how you actually got there. So th things like that. So that, that quality of communication, I think, was really clear. was really sort of, sorry, important, I think. One of the other, other things, I think, was just the concept of the products. And this was something I didn't realise until seven or eight years into it. So what you do with a computer product, you bring out a, put a product onto the market, and it'd be enough to do, you get it on as soon as you can because you're always worried about competition. And it'll be enough to do an adequate job. And then as years go by, you slowly enhance it and adapt according to competition. So if we're looking at the major products, we've got like the Global Peace Index, Global Terrorism Index, the Cost of Violence for the Global Economy, uh, Positive Peace, a lot of work we even do around ecological, global ecological threats things like that, we bring out a pro, produce a report annually on it. And so the first Global Peace Index was pretty basic, you know, went out, hired, I think it was the Economist, it was, the Economist Intelligence Unit in London, which is one of the world's best groups producing indexes, got them to do the first, then built the, the in-house skills up to take over from them and uh, understand how to do it. And so what happened the, uh, is we moved on, we just enhance the products each year. They get deeper and they get richer. And it's pretty much the same style as what you do with a, a, a computer products. Now look at other think tanks, and most of them are sort of chasing funding. They quite often get it for maybe three years for a project, get the funding, it finishes and moves on. But me, putting a lot of the, the initial seed capital into the Institute for Economics and Peace, I could take a long-term view. And that 
And that was the view of like you to take something and incrementally improve it year on year on year. So we get, let's say, 17 years into the Institute for Economics and Peace now. A lot of the, a lot of the products have got a lot of depth and they're used by all the major multilaterals. And we do an incredible amount of the uh, consulting for groups like the UN, Commonwealth Secretariat, OECD, and we could keep, even Google, and we could keep going on for more. So, and just to clarify, when you said the Economist Economics Unit, do you mean like the Economist Magazine? Yeah, we have the Economist Intelligence Unit. It's one of the two divisions of the Economist Group, and the other division is the Economist Magazine. You know, that's not something, that's not a move I see a lot from the nonprofit world, is to go to someone like that. And yet, when you when you bring that level of consultants, that level of expertise to help you get something started, no wonder, like, what a leg up when you're trying to get attention for it, right? When they can go, oh, wow, that's who helped you? Yep. I think the other thing, too, which was really int interesting at the beginning, so what I did is, like, it's all about getting a, uh, there's a lot of people telling me you can't measure peace. It's really something which is controversial. You're just going to get slammed. So, so one that was one of the reasons for going there. But also, I just really wanted a quality product. But the other thing we did, which really worked well, is we went out and then got about two hundred uh, 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 well-known names to back the index. And so, how do you get someone to back an index which hasn't been done before? Okay. And you're looking at people like, what would be examples? So Desmond Tutu, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, you know, there's 200 names like this. Uh, Ex-heads of the, of the major multilateral institutions, like just household names, some of them. So what do you do? We developed a very simple uh, uh, thing for him to subscribe to, and that was, do you think that the measurement of peace is important to a to a understanding peace, and basically answer for all of them. Yes, we're happy to sign up to that. And so now you bring that along as sort of authenticity around the research you're doing as well. Saying, look, all these people think it's a good idea. Why don't you? <laughs> that makes me think about. Peter Diamantis, when he started the X Prize, you know, that became Virgin Galactic of like, hey, anybody can get a spaceship into space wins the $10 million, right? He was worried people would laugh him off the stage. So he was able to get the head of NASA and the head of the Air Force or these kind of guys to be on stage when he made the announcement. And so all the reporters were like, well, if those guys think this is serious, I guess I should too. And in the end, all the reporters took it serious. Yep, no, that's right. Percep perception is such an important thing. And so we don't want to lose the concept of the uh, perception with the, uh, 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 how can I put it, the uh, uh, propaganda. But on the other hand, we do want to deal uh, uh, authentically with perception. A lot of really great ideas have been smashed because of just poor perception and poor communication. Yeah. When you think about entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders who are listening today, what, what's a piece of advice you'd have for people, you know, who are who are uh, trying to grow their organizations that haven't reached your level of success when it comes to these same subjects? So, look, just a general piece of advice I, I tend to give a lot, and I think it's one of the, one of my major lessons in, in life. And there's a few of them, but this is, this is one of them. 
So generally, you want to pursue what you like. So generally, and that's the thing, and so you've got a whole lot of things we like to do. And generally, the things we like to do are the things we're generally best at. Now, there's a virtuous cycle here. So the more we do something, the more we like it, the harder we work, and that's probably more than a lot of other people, and we've got a skill we like. At some point, we realise, wow, we're really good. But there's a gap to when other people will realise you're really good. Okay, so you've got this perception gap. It's always there, always there. Once you, that arises, then there's the uh, people realise you're good, and then sort of after that, you may get some promotions. You get the recognition for it. So there's a gap between the perception of recognising it and the recon, the perception of seeing it, and the recognition. Then there's another gap to when you actually get the money. So the process of self-fulfillment is you do something, you do it really well, you realise you do it well, now you're starting to feel pretty good about yourself and the rest of it is sort of builds on top of it uh, to build your self-esteem, happiness, well-being or whatever. Now, what a lot of people want to do is think, well, if I make a whole lot of money, other people are going to respect me, therefore I'm going to feel good about myself. But as an entrepreneur... If you just look to where the money is and you go there, you're probably already two, two to ten years too late because that's where all the action is and there's a lot of innovators which have got there before you. But So that's the first thing. I think the second, another one which I think is really important, if you've got a really brilliant idea, don't expect other people to understand it. And so this is just a rough <laughs> heuristic, like about one percent of the planet will say is thought leaders okay you've got another 10 percent which is early adopters and then you've got maybe another uh, 40 percent which are followers and then you've got the other 29 percent which will say or 39 percent which will say is laggards okay but the maths aren't quite right but you get the idea and so what happens if you've got a really good idea there's only a small number of people who can actually you express it or pick up on it can run with it. It's another group, when they see it, they'll think, okay, right, okay, I've seen that in action, that was really good, I can apply it to what I'm doing here and I'll run with it because they're, they're your early adopters. And then the others, and a lot of these are very, very good board, make very, very good board directors, very, very good CEOs. In fact, most CEOs and most board directors are like this, in particularly in bigger companies. They now can see what's emerging and now will work with it because that's low risk for their companies, low risk for their companies. But if you're an entrepreneur, seek out the early adopters. And when you're dealing with a laggard, like that's someone who never got fired for buying IBM, or I guess in these days, Microsoft, you're, not get, you're probably not going to have too much luck until you've actually built the customer base. But the early adopters, in the early days, that's what you want. I think one of the other things too is like this concept of finding the white space on the canvas. So if you think of sort of reality as this real rich matrix, I guess, or tapestry if you like. So to look at the parts which are unweaved or if it's, think of it as a painting, where's the white space? Where your best entrepreneurial stuff will come out of somewhere where other people aren't actually active. I would actually love to talk way more about this. I think it's a good place to end for part one. 
Everybody, please tune in to part two. I'm going to be asking Steve more about the white space and how we can all learn from his successes. Steve, if people want to find out about your work and about the indexes, where are the best places online? So we've got a website called Vision of Humanity. So if you go to that, you'll be able to download any of our products we've got. Got a whole lot of interactive maps, a whole series of articles as well. And that's probably the best place to go. The other thing is that they published a book called Peace in the Age of Chaos, which covers the entrepreneurial story of creating an international think tank, part of a personal stories uh, around, similar to what I've been talking about on this program. You can get that from any of the major places you buy a book from, like Amazon, that you book Utopia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's peace in the age of chaos. That's great. Everybody, please tune into part two. I've got a lot more questions for Steve. Thanks.